Hold on oh, a second. second. Like this? No, not quite like not quite that. Actually. We actually try to keep it away from our eye. All right. All right. As I'm being forced. I had to dress him this morning, too. Yeah. It was really bad. As I'm being for, forced into the uh, 21st century here. Um, and I'm a little early to drink there, Pastor. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, and it, it, it's a real pleasure and honor to be here. I'm just going to back this up a little bit so I don't I feel like I'm j- j- jumping on her lap there. All right. Um, and again, it's a real honor and pr- uh, privilege to be here. And as you pastor said that, uh, you know, years ago, um, my, um, a lot of my family was raised here. In fact, I met my wife, Raquel, here, right? And we were married here, and many of my children were baptized here, and uh, my wife and daughter are in San Josh, or in Virginia, uh, still working and going to school, so they couldn't make the trip, but hopefully uh, this weekend uh, they'll be able to come up. And uh, So we have a lot of history here and um, in this church, and uh, if you don't know, um, so many of you do, that uh, Fred and I go way back, you know, uh, back to high school. So that's how long he and I have been um, hanging out and having fun and, and doing stuff together. So we, uh, it's just really neat to have that kind of... Um, history with, uh, with Fred. Uh, also, if you'll notice, the, um, if you've seen the book and all the posters, uh, one of the forwards in the book uh, was written by Dr. Frederick J. Williams, which I, I greatly appreciate. And, and that, but that's a great, that was an honor for me, for him to, to, to do that. And, um, and I, it was a nice uh, legacy that he and I will have uh, for years on from now. Um, anyone looking at that book will see us together. And that's a lot of our, my journey, I talk about in the book, about my one man's journey through war, faith, and forgiveness. Um, and that journey all, always starts with old friends and young and old family. And, um, and of course, my mother is here. Uh, and my brothers and my children and grandchildren are all here as well. So it's just a wonderful place to be. And it's a wonderful place to really start um, this new journey that I'm on um, with, with, with the book. You know, Purple Hearts, Wounded Spirits, One Man's Journey Through War, Faith, Forgiveness. But it's every man's story. And that's the way I, I look at it, especially as, as a Christian. Um, whether you realize it or not, and hopefully you do, we're all at war um, on, on a spiritual nature. Right? We're all fighting a, a battle of some type. And if you're not prepared for that battle, um, you know, your wounds and other uh, damages and collateral damage is going to be uh, much worse. And so how this all started was give you a little bit of background, and I'll talk about you know, where I went through that. Um, but I deployed um, within the Hampshire Army National Guard uh, three times to Iraq and Afghanistan. And after my last tour, when I came back, um, you know, I was wounded. So I had some physical uh, ailments, but I also had a certain level of um, PTSD and other issues that I had to work through. And so part of the therapy for that was the beginning of the book, in that um, they wanted me to write out all the things that were difficult to talk about, think about, and, that, and some hard experiences. And the so more I wrote that, the more you minimize it, it's not as big a deal, it's easy to talk about. But also, I, people used to ask me, you know, things that happened. So we would talk about um, some of my adventures, and some of my uh, experiences over there, and some of them were kind of funny, especially looking back, and uh, just especially working with different cultures and different people. And more and more people would say, you know, you got to write that down. That's a pretty good story. And so pretty soon, all that hard stuff and all that funny stuff and different things in between all came together um, in about a five-year um, period. Sometimes I'd work, sometimes, you know, I would write, sometimes I'd put it down, and, 
And as I moved along, it was uh, really my wife, um, who I say is my, she's my North Star. She's my constant, constantly showing me the way home. And um, she was constantly pushing me towards, you know, really need to get this done. And, of course, my response was, well, who's going to read this? My mother, you know? Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, who really is going to, you know, but she said, well, make up copies for, every, for the kids and the grandkids. That'll be your legacy. They'll know what you've done, where you've been. I said, all right. So we did that. As time went on, um, because a, of a uh, family charity that we have called Walmart, which it's changed the direction a little bit now, um, different people have come in contact, different celebrities and other people um, have come around to support that. Um, one was Chuck Norris, you know, and of course his picture's in the book. Uh, Mike Huckabee, you may have heard of him. And um, so I wrote to Mike Huckabee, and, you know, he knew who I was and just told him, sent him my manuscript and said, what do you think about this? What should I do with any of this? And he wrote back and said, I love it, and here's a forward for it. And I, he said, I think you ought to pursue it. So through that, and with some help of my son, uh, Brandon, we went to Liberty University and presented them with a the book. And they uh, came back and said, yeah, we like it. Let's do this. And so it's just been that kind of process, um, learning everything from the uh, first time out. Um, I've never done anything like this as far as um, actually publishing a book and what's entailed with that. So that was a new experience al along the way. And so here we are. It finally came out, and we've got it published, and it's on uh, Amazon and Barnes & Noble. And uh, all that's been exciting. It's been quite a, a journey in, in that end now. Um, but how did this all start? Well, if we go back to 9-11, which for some maybe seem like ancient times, and for others it's not even history, they're so young. Um, but in 9-11, where, you know, where were we? It's some, for some ways, it's kind of like Pearl Harbor. Or, you know, where were you when that happened? Or where were you when John F. Kennedy was assassinated? You know, I, I can picture the exact moment in time. I was teaching at a school in Nashua, at a small Christian school, and we uh, ran to the TVs to find out what was going on, like a lot of people. And before long, we realized we were under attack, you know, and this was not going to be good. So I was standing there with my high school students, trying to explain to them as best I could with what I knew what was going on. But I realized at that point, things had changed. And I said to those kids then, I said, your life has changed. Nothing will be the same. Your entire future is now taking a different direction. Right? And that was very prophetic. You know, I didn't realize that at the time, because one of the young students sitting in my class uh, on the day of 9-11 by 2007, was a soldier in my platoon in Iraq. Right? And, um, so that's, and his joke was, uh, only in America can you go to war with your history teacher. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, but I said, you know, that, that's true, but that's what makes us Americans, right? That, you know, when, when things like this happen, you know, we put down our books and we put down what we have to or whatever tools we're working with, and we get up and we go stand in the gap. And so that's what we had to do. And um, so that was a unique relationship that he and I had throughout that tour and, um, you know, that knowing him as, since he had been a kid and him seeing me as Mr. Sergeant Moore as the teacher and now uh, in Iraq. So that happened. So as it, when that happened, 9-11, uh, it had a, a real, real heavy impact on me in a sense that um, uh, my son Brandon was um, a senior in high school and his uh, high school class had gone to New York City like they did every year to do a, kind of a mission outreach and pass out tracts and talk to folks on the street. And this particular year, they decided to go to the Twin Towers. And so they were there September 7th, 8th, and 9th, I think. Yep. They basically, that Thursday, Friday, Saturday, prior to 9-11. And um, so they were in the lobby passing out tracts, talking to people as they came through. Um, 
And by all reports, it went very well. They were very uh, surprised by the reception that all these people going to work, walking in, talking to them, would talk to all these young high school kids and, and took their tracks. And I think they estimated they passed out well over 1,000 of them you know, in that weekend. Um, a couple days later, they're, they're home. So that you came, drove home Monday morning, the towers came down. And um, for me, that was way too close. And it just had a, really began to work on me, um, not in a good way. And, um, and, I, and praise my son, you know, he's a um, great relationship with God. And, he, you know, his attitude at that time was, well, think of all the people that we pass those tracks out to. You know, and how many of them had come to Christ the night or day or the, over the weekend with that track or were, had read that, had come to Christ with that track watching the building burn down around them. You know? And obviously when he gets to heaven, he'll know that. And that's a great way to look at it. And that's very true, and that's the way we should look at it. For me, it became, a, a, I couldn't get past the feeling that somebody had just pointed a gun at my son and pulled the trigger. I couldn't get past that. And it just began to eat away at me that at any moment, um, was this going to happen again? Is someone else going to go after one of my children or my friends? These were all good people. So something had to be done. Well, like I said, I was in the Army National Guard, and I was teaching, and we continued to go to drill. Um, some of my drills stopped. Um, so I get to pick on my daughter a little bit. Um, in January of 2003, uh, it was wintertime in New Hampshire, and I was cleaning the ice off the hayloft door, and I fell and landed on my feet in, on, a, on a paved uh, driveway in February and broke both my legs. Right. And so I'm laying there um, by myself outside realizing this is not good. And uh, uh, my brother's going to make fun of me. <laughs> but I'm really laying there saying, all right, I'm in trouble. I didn't even try to stand up. I just began to crawl to the front door. And I finally got there. My daughter, Becca, almost 20, was probably five, and opens the door and says, Daddy, and closes the door in my face. Because <laughs> she obviously thinks, oh, Daddy, he's, sales. he's so silly. So she, and I'm laying there like I'm passing out. You know, like, and so uh, my wife, being a sharp individual as she is, uh, said, what was that? And she said, oh, Daddy, he's on the ground. Well, Raquel's, you know, realized, okay, that's not probably a good idea. And she got me, got the ambulance, and, um, and I had broken both of my legs. So at that point, I'm now in, I'm in a wheelchair, I'm in cast, and it's a long year, which means I can't go to drill. I can't go to the National Guard. They're like, all right, obviously you can't drill with no, you know, broken legs. And that was almost the entire year. December came in 2003, and I got a phone call from the New Hampshire Guard, from my sergeant, saying, this is, this is a call-up. We're being deployed and, uh, to Iraq. But he said, you don't have to go. you got broken legs. We get that. But you have to show up for drill. But I was walking at that point. Out of, I was out of my cast. And uh, so I was talking to Raquel about it. And uh, she said, well, how long are you going to be gone? I said, mm, if I go, probably it could be as much as a year and a half. And I hadn't been away from her for more than a couple of days at a time in 11 years of marriage. So that was a tough one. But I said, well, I don't have to go. You know, I've got my legs are messed up. They said I could stay. And she says, yeah, right, you're, you're going. So I went to drill. And, um, and, and sure enough, just being a part of that and being a part of I had trained for so long to go. And, but also this need that I, feel like, I felt like I needed to do something. I, it was just a driving sense of I needed to defend my family. So I, uh, I said, no, I'll go. I'll volunteer. Don't worry about my legs. I'll be fine. I'm going to be riding around a Humvee anyways. I won't have to walk, right? And uh, so we went. Um, you know, and, and I, I get into all the minor details, but we, we, we mobbed in, uh, at Fort Dix, New Jersey. Only the Army would send you to New Jersey in January. 
uh, to go to the desert. And so we left New Jersey. It was 25 degrees below zero. We got to uh, Kuwait. It was 110 degrees. Right, right. So, um, so we adjusted to that. The first tour, 2004, um, in Iraq, it was right after main invasion. It was kind of crazy. Uh, there wasn't a lot of inf infrastructure, as they say. Big army hadn't arrived, which in some ways is a good thing. And, um, and we just made it work. We did convoy escorts, driving, escorting convoys up and down um, throughout Iraq. But on the way over there, when we got to Kuwait, and we had a little bit of downtime um, before we were waiting for a ride to the war, as they say, to get flown into Iraq, um, all the guys in my, my squad and my platoon knew that I taught at a Christian school, so I was the Christian. And so they would start coming to me, um, you know, off and off hours and off times, and with real concern about, about their salvation, about what's going to happen to me when I die. And at this point, I had been gearing myself up for... And, and I say this, you know, in all honesty, I wanted to go to Iraq and I wanted to kill people. I wasn't a tourist. This wasn't a career move. You know, I wanted to go, and, and, I fig and at that point, I thought that every Muslim terrorist uh, that was dead couldn't fly a plane. And, and that's just exactly, that was my whole intention. I had to do as much as I could to defend my family and my country. So I didn't want to mess around. I wanted to get there and get this done. So as time went on, that began to plant a dark seed in my heart. And you, and you can't have that kind of hatred and that kind of dark seed in your heart um, and have a relationship with Christ that's going to flourish and grow. Right, so I've got a real conflict. Then I have guys coming to me with, sincerely, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to die. I'm af what am I going to do if, if something happens? Uh, if I get killed, will I go to heaven? How does that work? And so now I'm sitting there and either like, hey, look, buddy, I'm in a really good, hateful place right now, so you're going to have to go talk to somebody else. <laughs> Right? It doesn't work, right? So I opened my Bible, and, 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 and God did that to, to me throughout my life. Whenever I was in a, in a, either in a, self, in a pity party or going through a tough time or depressed, he would send somebody right, drop him in my lap, and say, hey, I, and somebody that said, I need Christ. And then, all right, because you can't share Christ. You can't share the love of Christ. You can't share your testimony about how, the grace and love and mercy that he's you know, poured all over you and be sour about it, right? And, um, and the more you do that, then... Obviously, that, that changes your heart, and it begins to take that weight off again. So I was constantly fighting this back-and-forth battle of, um, of wanting to share Christ, glorify him, glorify God in all that I did and said, knowing that everyone that was looking at me thinking, well, he's that Christian. Right? So I had that, I know, I've got to maintain my testimony, but in the back of my mind, it's like, you know, let's get out and start shooting at people. And that didn't take long. And that first tour, I mean, literally, out the gate, um, they would start shooting at us. So I was, all right, well, game is on. Um, and I'm not trying to, I'm not John Wayne or Audie Murphy or anybody like that, um, but that's just the reality of what we had. And, um, and we were scared, you know. I think it was Patton who said, if any soldier, he said, he doesn't know fear, is either a fool or a liar. And, um, but I found that in that fear, especially the first time we stopped and all of a sudden um, people are shooting at us, you know, from rooftops and windows, um, I got angry, because, and at that point, I was angry because I'm standing next to my friends. These are guys I've come to know, I've worked with, all good guys, and, um, and somebody's trying to hurt them, somebody's trying to kill them. And, and at that point, I mean, my anger just went through the roof. I wasn't in a rage. I was very much under control and just took control of the situation. And everything that happened in that first tour, working with the enemy, only convinced me that I was right that there was nothing redeemable about these people, that they, said, uh, they all just needed to die. Right? And, 
And that just got kind of burned into my heart more and more and more. And, and when you go through the book, I talk about some of those things that happened in, in that tour and the other tours that followed. Um, but, but every time I came back um, from one of those um, trips or whatever, those missions, there was always an opportunity for somebody who wanted to talk about Christ. And then I would have to kind of pull myself back. And I know that God was doing that. God was purposely putting people in my life so I wouldn't get to a point where I couldn't be pulled back. And it kind of t- helped keep me grounded on where I needed to be. So that was that constant struggle. And it was, I found it easier to be brave when I was angry. And, of course, realizing that I should have p- p- placed my, all my, uh, my safety, my security, my bravery in Christ. But it was just easier to be angry and then be brave. And um, so that first tour ended a little bit early. Uh, one of my youngest sons was... Um, was having some problems at home, and w- so I came home to see him, and I was home for about six months or so, and it really begun to work on me. I'm going to stay home, take care of my family and whatnot. Um, but more and more, it really began to uh, bother me f- to the point that my wife finally came to me with a phone book when we used to have phone books, kids. It's a book that had phone numbers in it. And, um, and she said, you need to call somebody in the National Guard and go back because she said, this is coming between us. You know, the fact that, and I had never said anything, but she said, the fact that you had to end your tour early and come back for us is going to create a is creating division between us. You're going to be bitter over time. You feel like you've, you've left too early. You had unfinished business, as many soldiers feel like. And uh, she said, you need to go and get this done. So I called them up, and I did something that soldiers never do, and I volunteered. And I said, I'll go anywhere. I don't care. So they sent me to Afghanistan. Serves me right. And... Um, so, so I got to Afghanistan, and, and a big part of the book is about Afghanistan, because that was what I call my Dances with Wolves tour, if you get the, uh, the connection. Because I got there, and I was supposed to be training um, new Afghan recruits in boot camp. And of course, in the Army, you realize that when your boots hit the sand, there you are. In other words, your, your orders will change and change and change constantly, right? So I got there, and somebody looked at my, uh, my background and said, oh, he's mountain qualified. He's qualified to fight in the mountains. Yeah, when I was 25. <laughs> when I was in Afghanistan, I was 45. Right? And um, so they said, no, they changed my orders and attached me to a Mujahideen Afghan army group. I was embedded with them, lived with them. And again, my first thought when I got to Afghanistan, so good, I get to kill more Muslims. But now I'm living with them. I'm working with them. And I got there, and I'm talking to the other American soldiers who I'm relieving, and it's myself and like two or three other Americans and 150 Afghans and they said, you're going to go live in the mountains. You're not going to be on a base. You're not going to be around any more other Americans. You're going to eat with them, sleep with them, lay on the ground, do missions with them. You're going to be with them. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. No, I said, no, they'll cut my throat in my sleep. And I said, no, these are different people. These are Afghans. You're a guest. It's an honor to have you here. And, um, and pretty soon I found out he was right. I developed a great relationship with them. They were great people. And God definitely took me and put me in a place where I just had to give up all my security and all my safety and just let go and just have to put my, literally put my life in their hands and just let go of that. And, and I pretty quick I realized what he was doing, which kind of made me angry because like, come on, I got this hate thing going, you know, and you're messing with my game, you know. And, um, and I had, had to let that go. And, um, and I also learned I was living and working with Muslims who were trying to define themselves from other Muslims, right? And that sometimes people forget in this country is that we're not in Afghanistan fighting Afghan Muslims. We're in Afghanistan fighting with Afghan Muslims against a whole entirely different group. 
So I lived with them, um, and we came really close. When I say we, I got invited to their weddings, uh, we went to funerals of so- Afghan soldiers who were killed. Uh, we were together all the time. I even had one Afghan soldier um, offer to uh, marry his, his, his sister to me. <laughs> yeah. And um, this is all through an interpreter. And I like telling the story because my wife's not here because she, she didn't appreciate it. Um, <laughs> and uh, so the interpreter explained to me, he said, he wants you to marry his sister. And, and, and I said, well, I can't do that. He said, well, we've got to be careful because in Afghanistan, you could be careful if you don't insult someone, you could end up with a problem. So I tried to explain to him, well, I'm already married. He said, okay. He says, I've got three wives. <laughs> okay, a little cultural problem there. Um, so I said, well, I, you know, I'm thinking through it, and I said, well, I said, uh, in America, I would be punished, first by my wife, <laughs> and then the law or anybody else, and they understand the English word punish. In the Afghan army, um, if you mess up, it's not like an army, you might do push-ups or peel potatoes, um, there they beat you, so, and they use the English word punish for that, and uh, so I would be punished, she's like, oh, okay, so I got out of bringing her home, um, you know, so, but that was the kind of, that's how close, when I say we were, that um, that's what, the, you know, they th- we thought of each other. And at one point, I was, um, I noticed that there was this young Afghan soldier named Abraham, and um, Ibrahim, but we called him Abraham, and wherever I went, he was there, standing with a big smile, couldn't speak much English. So I asked my interpreter, I said, what's with uh, this guy here? And he said, oh, that's Abraham, he's your bodyguard. I said, I have a bodyguard? You know, they say, oh, yeah, oh, Sergeant, something happened to you. Shame on all of us, right? Wow. So I went to talk to the commander, uh, Asheroff, who's an Afghan commander, a former warlord, and they just grabbed a lot of the warlords and said, look, if you want to keep your status, join the army and bring your guys with you, and we'll put you in uniform. So I said, all right. So I went to Asheroff, and I said, oh, thank you for thinking so much of me that you gave me a bodyguard. So, Sergeant Moore, he says, you are dead. I am dead. All Afghans are dead. So they're going to kill all of them before they get to me. Right. And so there I'm sitting there for a moment saying, wow. This is how much, how much they think of me. And I came here, all I wanted to do was kill them. You know, and I wanted to hate them because it was easier that way. Right? Ang- anger makes you, makes you brave. Right? And what I didn't realize is I had a lot of deep-seated uh, hatred and anger over, over issues that I just hadn't let go of and it was all coming to the surface at that point. Uh, later on, um, I was doing something foolish. Afghanistan is the most mined country in the world as far as explosives. So you're very specific about where you walk and make sure you're, you're walking in uh, known places. Well, at one point, I had some guys come to me. Another couple of Amer- Americans came to this little outpost we were on and said, hey, we're going on a, a, a hike up in this uh, hills. We want to check out, the, um, see where the enemy might be coming from. Why don't you come with us? And I said, all right. So I went off with them and their guys, and we were marching along, and and a couple of Afghans with us, and without, before long, I looked down across the, uh, the, this open field and down the road, and there's Americans down there waving, and a couple of Afghans, and they got on the radio and said, you're in the middle of a minefield. And I finally, you know, again, this is what happens when you get complacent, stopped and looked around, there's nothing but dead animals. Right? So now what do we do? Well, you walk out the way you came in. Right? Before I can do that, who literally comes running across the field to me is Abraham. Right? Ran up to me, I said, hit his leg, and the interpreter said, he says, you walk where he walks. And he, and he stomped his way 
out of the minefield, right? So if there was a mine, it would, it would kill him before it would kill me. So I walked behind Abraham in shame. I said, here's a perfect analogy of Christ. I screwed up. I put myself in harm's way, and this guy comes up and says, I'll take it. All right, I'll take the hit. You follow me. All right, and there's this 19-year-old Afghan kid who thought so much of me that he was willing to have his legs blown off to get me to safety. And all I wanted to do was kill these guys when I got there. I wanted to hate them. So at that point, I like to think of um, David and Jonathan, and David and the prophet Nathan. And of course, we know Jonathan was a very close friend of David's, to the point that he defied his father to fight for David and defend David. But Nathan, the prophet, was the man who pointed his finger at the king and said, you're the man. When David was wrong, he told him so. So by Abraham being so much of a friend that he was my Jonathan, was willing to risk his life, at that point he brought me face to face with the Holy Spirit, who was my Nathan. And said, shame on you. So from that point on, my opinion and my focus on the Muslims had changed drastically. And I began to see them as, these are people Christ died for, these are people that Christ went to the cross for, um, they're in need of his grace and mercy and salvation as much as anyone else. Now, are there bad guys out there that call themselves Muslims that are trying to kill me and them? Sure. But they all became separate. Right? People become defined by their actions, not by their birth. Right. So we went through um, more of the uh, Afghanistan uh, tour like that. It was um, some crazy stuff went on, some funny stuff, a lot of cultural issues. Um, in fact, there's a whole chapter called Bathroom Humor. Uh, and um, I, I, can, I can actually say that at one point I was tasked with giving a lesson to the Afghan soldiers on how to use toilet paper. Right. This is a little, real quick funny story. They, they use rocks, right? smooth rocks. And, um, and they were going to Porta Johns, use rocks, not the toilet paper, and throw the rocks in the, uh, in the tank. What happens when the machine comes along the truck and sucks all that out? Right? It's like throwing a bag of rocks into a, a wood chipper. Right? So they were destroying the motors and all, those, all that equipment. So I had to say, all right, guys, toilet paper. It's a new wonderful thing. We got lots of it. And they thought, oh, that was a great idea. So that was a, there was a big push for that. And, uh, um, but again, there's a lot of cultural things we had to do. Some things we had to let go of. In the American military, the higher rank you are, you should eat last. Other things, you take care of Joe, you take care of the, the privates first. Rank has its privileges only after it's met its obligations. Sometimes that second part gets lost. So when we were eating, um, they had the line, so I got in the back of the line with a couple other American NCOs and officers, and they stopped the line and said, oh, no, you guys don't wait in line. You sit down, we'll bring the food to you. I said, no, 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 that's not the way we do it in the American military. You let all the Joes go first. They said, oh, this is a shame, Sergeant Moore. You need to sit down. They, they closed down chow line. I said, all right. So some things we had to let go of. Some things we just culturally had to let go of. Like manual labor. If you're somebody important, you don't do manual labor. In American military, we got in this small little base, and it was nothing but a couple of huts. And so we're out there filling sandbags and finding, trying to build a fighting position in case we get overrun. Oh, Sergeant Moore, you shame us. Important people don't do this. 
Right? So they had to have other guys come in. They had to hire local um, guys from the village to come in and do all the manual labor. So a lot of things like that we had to let go of, uh, which is just you know, that constant learning curve of living with them and understanding uh, where they're coming from. One thing I really appreciate about the Afghans is that but when you did do something like that, um, if you did make some mistakes, they're like, oh, no problem. No problem. Everything was no problem. No problem. You're not an Afghan. We don't expect you to know this stuff. We'll teach you. Right? So they were never offended unless you continued to do something like that. Well, Afghanistan was a, was a long tour, and I finished that tour. And when, time we were, I'm standing there with all my Mujahideen buddies, and these are some hardcore guys. They've been around. So many of them had fought the Russians, fought the Taliban, you know, and they're all giving me hugs, and everybody's crying. You know, because they all, oh, Sergeant Moore, stay, stay. And, and for a while, I wanted to stay. But I said, I have a family, I have a wife, I have to go home. So I left Afghanistan in a much better place, not completely where I needed to be, but with a lot to think about. And the Lord had really put me in a place where I really had to just let go and, and see the Muslims for who they were, and see the Afghans for who they were. So I got home, and, uh, within a, and when I got back to New Hampshire uh, National Guard, uh, once again, said, hey, if you, I was in the infantry, or, right? and I said, if you transfer to the MPs, um, we'll make you, you know, the uh, first sergeant of this MP company that we're building from the ground up. So we only got, there's only six guys, and it's brand new. You won't go anywhere. Um, you won't get deployed because there's only six guys. And I said, all right. I said, so, so I did that, and I transferred over to MPs and became their platoon sergeant. In six months, we had 50 guys, all young. Right, right, out of, right out of boot camp. And this is where one of my students became uh, one of my guys. And um, all of a sudden, we get the call and said, hey, your platoon is being attached to the North Carolina National Guard, and then you're going to Iraq. <laughs> Somebody thought that was a good idea. So, um, but they said, you don't have to go, because and I hadn't been home six, seven months. And even in Afghanistan, I got bound a little bit and stuff, so I was kind of still coming off of that. Um, and they were getting ready to go, and I thought, you know, I'm their platoon sergeant. These are all young kids. I had my former student there. And uh, so, again, and it was my wife, again. She came to a little ceremony there, and she saw all them and saw my relationship with them, and she said, you need to go. And I said, you're letting me go again? She said, I don't want you to go, but you need to go. So I said, all right, I'll go. So I was a platoon sergeant, and we teamed up with the North Carolina National Guard, uh, we had some language issues at first for a little while. We got an interpreter. Uh, t- so <laughs> and uh, um, they, they called us Canadians. They said, we live so far north, we're not in America anymore. And, uh, but by the time we were done, we were all tight, and to this day, we're, we're all tight. You know? uh, that's one thing that uh, I, lo- I love about the military. It doesn't matter what your background is, where you came from, uh, race, ethnic background, anything. Uh, you spend enough time together, you all come together, right? You're all brothers and sisters in arms. You know, wearing the same uniform, the same flag, none of that matters. And I really uh, appreciate that about the military. So we went to uh, Iraq, went to Baghdad. It's a little ashtray of a base just outside of Sada City. And um, it was a wonderful little place. It was right between the Iraqi uh, Baghdad septic water treatment place, which was an open cesspool swamp thing, and, um, which also meant all the mosquitoes were there and all the other thousand miles of open trash on fire. So that's, that's what we did. But I told my wife not to worry, not to worry. I said, I'm going to be living on the base. I'm the platoon sergeant now. I send all the guys. I send the, the squads out, outside the wire, outside the base. I'm beans and bullets, as they say. I just make sure they got their stuff, they got their mission, and I sit back and, and just enjoy the good life. So, all right. 
Well, we get there and we're getting rocketed and mortared almost every day. Because we're so, Sada City is a, is a rough place in Baghdad, and that's where a lot of the enemy were. And what they would do is they would um, launch the rockets and the mortars from the playground of an elementary school while the kids were there. Right? Knowing that, we're not going to shoot back at them. Um, although, I think we could have handled that differently. But, so we sat in our bunkers day after day and let these things hit and pound us. And of course, it's very demoralizing. I had, I had young troops, and they wanted to get into the fight. In fact, you should be proud of this, that my platoon in 2007 and 8 was the youngest military unit in New Hampshire history to deploy anywhere. They were 19, 20 years old. They were all right out of boot camp. And so I was old enough to be their debtor. And, um, but that was a great exper- ex- experience in that sense, um, being old, that much older and having that much more uh, experience in, in, in life and also on, on that end. And um, while I was there, I had a, good, a lot of opportunity to be, uh, to be in prayer. A lot of guys come to me, again, uh, looking for some kind of guidance. They all knew I was the Christian that uh, um, they wanted to see. I was, I was tested by different people. Some people didn't want to go crazy about my faith, so they wanted to see if they could set me up for failure. But you could, at my age, you should be able to see that coming pretty easily. And, um, but we dealt with, again, being rocketed and mortared and all the stresses that, that come with that. So finally one day, uh, I, the, the uh, rockets and mortars were coming in, and I, everybody's complacent. Everybody's walking to the bunkers. Here we go again. Because they never hit anybody. They they're just random. They would hit stuff. But rarely did anybody get hurt. So I'm pushing everybody into the bunker. And our bunker wasn't finished. It wasn't built right. It was wide open on one end, facing down the alley. And I had actually written a letter to the command of the base saying, if we get hit, they're going to funnel right through that bunker. Right? Of course, nothing was done. And then as we're walking in, I look out in the, in the uh, motor pool, out in this big parking lot, and I see a, a, a smoke round hit. And in the military, what that means is there's somebody, they have a spotter. They have somebody directing fire off of that smoke. So I said, all right, we're in trouble. And before I got in, there's an um, explosion behind me, and I was launched um, into the bunker with some other guys, and um, the force uh, threw me into a wall and dislocated my hip. And um, I had a concussion, some shrapnel. Um, and that particular day, we had 14 wounded, five killed. Um, but, and by the end of the tour, our company of 150 soldiers had f- five killed and um, 24 wounded in one company. And um, so at that point, everybody's hurt. People are bleeding. There's a chaos. The, um, the smoke, and I, I can... I can to this day, and I, it took me a couple of years to figure out what that taste was. I couldn't get it out of my mouth. When the, um, the rock came down, when they impacted some of the uh, trailers that we were living in, it was in our residential area, um, they caused the fire extinguishers to explode. And I didn't realize that until talking to some of the other guys later on, and all that powder was mixed in all the dust, and that was the taste I couldn't get out of my mouth. You know, it was just strange that those are the things that you, that you remember. And um, later on, we found out the reason all their uh, rounds were so accurate was the spotter was the Iraqi barber who had been cutting our hair, was on top of a building on the base with a cell phone directing fire on, on top of us. So they hit uh, about five bunkers right in the entrance of each bunker, right, right across the, uh, the living area. Um, and, uh, so, and I talk about you know, um, more the detail of, of that experience. When, um, but at that point, I'm just laying on the ground, and I've been in several situations um, in Iraq and in Afghanistan before, where I really thought, I ain't getting out of this. We're, we're not living past this one. 
And, um, but this, at this point, I was on the ground. I had suffered paralysis because of the impact. I could move. Um, I was disoriented. I, had, um, I was coming in and out of consciousness. And, and as I was laying there on, on gravel, and the uh, rounds kept coming in, you know, the, the ground would shake, and the force of the impact would constantly going through my body. And so I said, I'm, I'm going home. <laughs> yeah. So I, I just prayed, and I said, well, I said, Lord, this is it. I'm ready. And in however he did this with me or speaking to me at that particular point, um, he just told me, he said, no, you're not. You know, he said, You've, you still have too much hate in your heart to come home to us, you know, to come home. And, um, and I'm, I'm sitting there like, you know, Jacob wrestling with an angel. And, uh, of course, my, my hip's just dislocated, so I don't know what <laughs> yeah, how prophetic that was. But, um, you know, and it's just I had still had too much hate in my heart. There were too many things that I had to let go of. And, and in my mind's eye, whether it was um, my mind or God working through my mind or spirit or whatever, um, it literally just had him, saw his hand reach into my heart and pull it out, and it was black. And he just began to pull stuff out of it. And the more he pulled out, the wider it got and the wider it got. And he just forced me, and everything he pulled out, I would see. And I'd say, your life was going before your eyes. And all the things that had happened to me throughout my life, all the way through back to my childhood, uh, things that were said, all the things, all the painful things that I held on to um, that were finally just being pulled away from me. And, uh, and I remember almost thinking, no, this is mine. This is what makes me strong. This is what I hang on to. And he said, my son went to the cross for this. Who are you to hang on to what, I, what he died for? He said, Jesus had gone to the cross 2,000 years ago. Everything that was done or said to me by anyone, he already paid the price. Who are you, Brian Moore, to say, no, that's not good enough. I'm going I'm to hold on to it. I'm going to own it. Right? And, that, and I let go. And it all just, and it all just passed. And then, um, and I just threw a series of went up and passing out, and eventually I was medevaced out of Iraq, um, and eventually came home, and uh, spent some time doing some rehab and physical therapy. And the army decided that they had broke me enough at that point and retired me. And uh, and then I began the the process of emotional, spiritual, physical rehab, and began to write the book, and and here we are. Those purple hearts and wounded spirits. And uh, I think if you join me on that journey, you, you won't be sorry. <laughs>